Hey there, you're listening to Past to Present, a podcast where educators discuss the social studies curriculum taught in the great state of Texas. Hey, this is Lindsay. And this is Kevin. And today we're going to be talking about the 8th grade colonization unit for social studies and how to go about teaching that. And our starting point is going to be the essential questions from the KDSD unit plan, uh, which is what influences the development of a nation's culture? And we're focusing primarily on the political aspects of that question. So our first take we're going to talk about is 8.3b, which is analyze the importance of the Mayflower Compact the uh, Fundamental Orders of Connecticut and the Virginia House of Burgesses to the growth of representative government. And then we'll kind of focus in on 8.20a as well, which talks about explaining the roles of significant significant individuals like John Locke and Montesquieu is really who we're going to focus in on, and how they led to the development of self-government in colonial America. Okay, so as we start, um, the first thing that we really need to identify is what is self-government? I mean, what does that look like? And maybe that's even a question that you want to pose to the kids. Right, because we need to make sure that the kids understand what self-government is. I think sometimes we bring in our own biases on what we think they know, and they may not have any idea. So when I talk about self-government, I always talked about it is um, it's the people having the power. It's the people um, running the government. It's not some hereditary title. Right, which goes into popular sovereignty, which right. we'll tie back later. For me, self-government is more of like the social contract theory, which is going to tie into John Locke. But it's just the idea that the people enter the people enter into this government and ultimately um, we agree to be governed and therefore we the government should serve the people, right? Right. So like what are some good questions you think you could used to hook your kids into something with with this? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I might start it out at the beginning of the year of like, hey, let's make the rules for the class mm-hmm. and do have them create like a social contract and do that as like an engage activity to get them thinking about it. But really, I might just ask them things like, what is self, try to come up with a definition. Let's see where, where they're at, you know? I don't know. What about you? So something like, uh, like the champs training with creating the class constitution mm-hmm. or something along those lines. That's a really good idea. I think also um, anything you can relate back to their home life usually or something that goes on within their their family dynamics because mm-hmm. um, all kids feel like they have no power or say mm-hmm. what goes on yeah. in the classroom. So if they can have that, and, and I think that's something that's kind of universal um, that you might try to do is connect it to their home life. Yeah, that's a good idea. When we're starting this unit, we we start off by talking about what is self-government. And I think the idea behind that is giving the kids some type of background knowledge to draw from, some type of maybe even an experience if they are creating that social contract theory. Right. And then we want to move on to who John Locke is and his influence on our, our government. And this is a lot easier to teach than I think some teachers um, think it is, especially with pop culture and things like that. 
Yeah, and I think too, it's it's super important about how you sequence it. Like you really have to sequence it logically. What I've done in the past is I just jump in and I start teaching all the the influencers mm-hmm. as we call them, and I teach Montesquieu and Locke and all this. But I never make that connection for kids as, hey, this is where we're going. Let's start with what is self government, mm-hmm. and then tell them like, hey, by the end of this unit, we went from America, which was wilderness, to boom, we have an amazing country that is self sufficient, and eventually. revolts against the king leading to a revolution all in the name of self-government and so i think it's super important when you're sequencing this to make sure that you're doing it in a way that's going to build that um, schema for kids right and i really think with that teak uh 8.20a it lists a bunch of individuals I, i don't think that's something we teach with a content frame i don't think that's something that we teach where they read through and find out who these people are i think we can go a little bit beyond that and teach them individually instead of front loading, I guess. Yeah. yeah, instead of teaching them all at once. Like I did the activity, you know, the stations around the room and you go yeah. see each person. But my kids always had struggled with remembering them because it's not in the context. Right. And the, and the, and the, yeah, and the connections <clears throat> that are made. So, you know, if I was talking starting with John Locke, uh, I might give a little bit of background on him, but they don't need to know much about him. Mm-hmm. They need to know what he what he was writing in his social contract theory. And so if you're unfamiliar with it, it's the idea that the people uh, create a contract with the government, and the idea is they give the government power, and in return, the government protects their natural rights. These natural rights being life, liberty, and property, according to Locke. Right, and you know, with social contract theory, it's it's a hard concept to understand, but at the same time, it's it's really pretty easy. I boil it down to talking about the difference between liberty and freedom. Mm-hmm. And I know you talked about having the kids list freedoms that they would like to have and talking about like, what is liberty versus freedom? Do you have liberty or do you have freedom? Um, and telling the kids, you know, like freedom is basically the purge. That's what they're going to relate it to. Mm-hmm. Um versus liberty which is controlled freedom you give up a little bit of freedom you don't have the freedom to do whatever you want to do Mm -hmm. necessarily but in return you get safety for that and so i think really helping kids understand that that concept will help them understand social contract theory a little bit better right i think my favorite hook on the whole thing was asking students uh, in a do now or warm-up is to explain what would life be like in the school if there were no teachers Mm. And they all get excited about this. They all get really, uh, uh, first of all, the first question is always, well, then why would we come to school? You have to get them to suspend <laughs> pretend, that. Pretend, pretend. <laughs> but then they talk about how much fun it would be, and they talk about all the greatness, and then I ask them questions like, well, what would happen to the bathrooms? And then they kind of you know, scrunch their nose up and all those kinds of things. But then we talk about, well, would everybody be protected? And they talk about sixth graders being picked on, mm-hmm. or maybe you know if all the seventh graders and eighth seventh graders and sixth graders joined together, what would happen to the eighth graders? And they kind of start to realize that there's no structure there, right? And that rules have a significance, right? And so then we go into looking at uh, the John Locke social contract theory, uh, which in the We the People books, which I think every campus has, does a pretty good job of explaining that um, on. The idea that the weak would, the weak could join together and take away rights of the stronger people, or um, a few, you know, really strong people could 
could dominate everything. And I think it's also important, aside from just the social contract theory part, is to hone in on what does John Locke describe as the purpose of government. Mm -hmm. You know, the purpose of government is to protect the rights of people. And so we live in this, if if we lived in chaos, like in your example of the school with no Mm -hmm. rules or no teachers, if we lived in this constant state of chaos, we'd always have to worry about our safety. And so once we implement a, a sense of government, not a sense of government, but once we implement a governmental system, mm-hmm. then that's when we can start actually accomplishing things. And you can live without constantly worrying about dying or your neighbor stealing your stuff or whatever it may be. And so once you understand that connection, really you can understand that the purpose of a government is to protect the unalienable rights of people. Absolutely. And something to tie it back to the kids is um, there's a lot of pop culture out there that, that demonstrates this, whether it is The Purge or um, The Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, plenty of, of movies and books talk about this that maybe not all of your kids have reference to, but a number of them probably do. Lord um, of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. Which they, might they'll be, never have read that. <laughs> it might be a little dated for them, but I think um, overall, make sure you try to look and find those connections where you can. Okay, so once we lay lay the foundation of what is self-government, what's the ideas, what are the main ideas about self-government, why does government even exist, now what we need to do is go back to early English, not early English history, history, but um, pre-colonization and look at what was the structure of British government or English government at this time. And so looking at uh, some of the teaks, Magna Carta is going to be a huge influence. and, and the reason why we're going back to England is because most of our uh, government systems and even law is based on the English system to some degree. And so with Magna Carta, it's 1215, and the king is taxing people without their say. And so the nobles revolt and end up getting the king to sign this Magna Carta, which for the first time in the history uh, of a monarch in Europe has their power limited significantly by um, the people he has to ask before he can tax anyone. And so now we're introducing that idea of the principle of limited government and what, what how much that can impact a government system, right? Um, I know that according to the TEKS and the unit plans in KDISD, Magna Carta is not really introduced. I mean, we just kind of threw it in with the government unit. Mm. But I really feel that if you start here with it, you don't have to make it necessarily a huge aspect of it, but uh, of your lesson, but start here with it and it flows a little more um, easily into actually setting that foundational stage for kids. Right. And it's going to definitely be um, a chance. You got to remember, this is where the colonists are going to have the idea of being treated like Englishmen. And Englishmen. Magna Carta is going to kind of expand a little bit when they add the House of Commons. Again, kids don't need to know too much about that. But they need to understand that Magna Carta is where the Englishmen, including the colonists, believe they have this right to self-government or at least a say in government um, to some degree. And so the next thing we were going to talk about was the Mayflower Compact. And originally you had that on the list first. I kind of had it elsewhere. Um, why would you teach Mayflower Compact before, let's say, House of Burgesses or other? So I think I would start with Mayflower Compact because 
to me, I'm, I'm moving my kids from more simplistic concepts to more complex, right? And mm-hmm. the Mayflower Compact is pure self-government in my, in my mind um, because it does introduce that concept of majority rule and doing what's good for the colony and um, having some foundational rules so that it's not total chaos once we land. Um, right, and I think we're not going to get too much into the Mayflower Compact because this unit right now we're talking about self-government. We can add context later on in, in pre, uh, future episodes. We're not going to go too much into pilgrims and all that. But really, it's those them coming together to decide how they're going to organize themselves. And the Mayflower Compact is really not a government, right? Mm-mm. It's just an agreement. It's a social contract. It's a social contract, an agreement that they're going to work together. They don't have any structures in place. No. And so they really talk about majority rule and how the group is going to vote and decide. Now, who gets to vote and all that, again, we'll discuss later on. But um, it's it's this idea that they are going to make decisions as a community together. Um, yeah, so I, my kids love this idea of majority rule, and um, I really wanted to talk about that today. So we teach, you know, there's a million different ways you can teach majority rule. Mm-hmm. But the idea of the pizza, you know, I, I'm like, hey, if we were going to order pizza— Raise your hand if you would want cheese. Mm-hmm. Raise your hand if you would want pepperoni. What would the whole class get? And everybody's like, oh, they'll get pepperoni. We count it up and everything. And so they like to, they latch on to this idea of majority rule. I don't know about you, for you and your experience, but they latch on to it. And I struggle with it because even though it is a fundamental of self-government, I feel like later on when we get into actual constitution, our country's not really built to be a majority rule country. You know, if you read a lot of documents from the founding fathers, from Hamilton and Madison, they purposefully set it up to divide the country so that we don't have this huge idea of majority rule. So I'm not sure how you go about, I mean, you would definitely want to teach the idea of majority rule, but you want to make sure that kids understand that majority rule can lead to tyranny if it's done if it's taught, if, if it's done incorrectly. And so make sure that they understand that just because that's was the, the foundation of the Mayflower Compact doesn't mean it's the foundation necessarily of our country. Right. And I think um, a lot of our kids should come in with some experience with that, with sixth grade talking about majority rule and, and the, the benefits. And maybe in your classroom, you talk about what are some of the benefits of majority rule? What are some of the down uh, downsides of majority rule so that students understand that we don't want them to think government's perfect. We want them to understand that every government has its issues. Right. And I think that that complexity is maybe that's something you you do later on in the year, or maybe that's something you do as you go along. But I think um, they get the idea that this is not a perfect system. So the next step is the House of Burgesses. Uh, now the House of Burgesses is when the settlers of Virginia uh, realized that they needed to kind of continue to operate, but that they also needed some form of government because the king being so far away and parliament being so far away in England, that they were going to have to do something to take care of themselves. Right. So in my mind, when I roll this out to kids, like we move, we transition from the Mayflower Compact, which was just an agreement, right? It's a contract mm-hmm. between everyone that, hey, we know that what's best, what's good for most of the colony is good for everyone. And we, we promise to follow the rules. 
And now with the House of Burgesses, even though technically, chronologically it came first, but now we're moving to the idea of what does it look like in actuality? And the reality is you can't stop your day-to-day functions of the colony in order to have consistent government. So you're going to need then to have a representative. Right. And I think that's where we need to understand the difference between democracy and republicanism a little bit. And so the people can't just vote on every issue. And so they elect somebody to do that for them. Uh, This being in the House of Burgesses tended to be wealthy men who were making these decisions for everybody else. Whereas in, in somewhat in Plymouth, they had more of the idea of direct democracy at the very smaller level. Right. Well, they had the church. Right. I mean, that was their foundation. And when you participated in the church, you participated in the government because the government was the church. Correct. Right? Am I right on that? That's pretty much it, right? I mean, the House of Burgesses is different because that colony, Virginia, was established to be a moneymaker. Mm-hmm. And so it had to, it needed to produce. And in order for it to produce, um, it was more economic-driven rather than religious-driven. So you... Even though you still attended church, that wasn't necessarily the main forum for the government. They actually had a separate body. Right. And so um, the thing that you also want to kind of teach with this is the idea that this is this is kind of the the plan that the other colonies eventually follow. They right. kind of create this the their model. version of mm-hmm. a representative assembly. And make sure you understand you, you let your kids understand what a representative assembly is. They're um, Many of them have no clue. They, yeah, they they, I mean, they for sure need to know what an assembly is. Mm-hmm. And they also, one thing that's cool to stress to them is that this is the legislative branch. I mean, the the executive branch, quote unquote, was the king. And so that's where this fear of the king and having an executive branch eventually comes from. When we create the Articles of Confederation, they're so dependent on the legislative branch, right? Because that's the first branch in America. Right. So that that's an interesting connection to make. But fun fact, I didn't know this until many years after teaching this subject, but a Burgess is named after a borough. So you were elected from your borough, so then you were a Burgess. Did you know that? So it's geographically based? I guess, but that's where, like, I never knew what a Burgess was. We always, the kids always called it House of Burgers, right? Which is kind of funny and it helps them remember it. But if you actually explain, like, a, it's kind of like Hobbit talk, almost like Hobbits (laughs) live in burrows, right? Or, Uh, I'm going to have to take your, uh, (laughs) take your, take your. But that's the idea is that you, the the colony was separated into burrows. And so you elected one man to represent your borough, and he was a Burgess. And that, so that's where that term Burgess comes from. At least that's what Google told me. I did not know Google that. it for yourself, though. I did not know that. <laughs> so now that we kind of have mapped out like how we would go about introducing this major teak of analyzing how representative government was developed, um, what are some instructional tools that our teachers can use or that I can use as we go about teaching this? Well, I think the main thing that kind of speaks to me is the ability to create anchor charts, especially over like our three principles that we've discussed, um, you know, with limited government, uh, with popular sovereignty, and we kind of discussed republicanism. But the idea that if you have these anchor charts around your room starting now, not only, I know when I was in the classroom, I always waited to teach the seven principles until I got to the Constitution unit, Mm -hmm. which I think is a huge disservice to my students. So if I introduce these three, limited government, popular sovereignty, and republicanism now, and create anchor charts, for the rest of the year, I can refer back to those and have kids looking at events that take place and go, looking at 
you know, let's look at the, the Stamp Act. The, the, or the Stamp Act, yeah. yeah. And the Stamp Act, is that, in, does that in any way uh, a result of or a violation of, you know, limited government or popular sovereignty or republicanism? And I don't really care which one my kids choose as long as it, whatever their answer is, kind of proves to me that they know what limited government is or, pop, you know, those things. They, they yeah. They're intelligent, speaking intelligently about so it. So it's kind of hard to do anchor chart. I mean, I'm big on anchor charts, but it's kind of hard to do one for limited government. And I was I was thinking earlier about how I had the student one year who um, I, I challenged them to create their own anchor charts mm-hmm. of one of the seven principles. And she drew a picture of two people digging. One was a king and one was a democ- leader of democracy. Mm-hmm. And the king's tunnel was endless. He was still working on it. He was digging down into the ground. And the democracy, the guy who represented democracy, his tunnel had a rock. He dug a little bit and then there was a rock. And the rock was labeled flip rocks, which is what I use to teach the seven principles. But the kid could just write, you could just write seven principles on the rock to show that those principles are there to limit the power of the government. So what is flip rocks? So flip rocks is a, a, what is it called? A mnemonic? Okay, that I stole from someone. I never come up with any original ideas. But um, it stands for federalism, limited government, individual rights, popular sovereignty. The R is republicanism. See, you're testing me. The the O is silent. For OMG, this is fun. All right. And then (laughs) the C is checks and balances, and the S is separation of powers. Very well done. Thank you. You're a little nervous there. Thank you. Well, I teach my kids it, and I make them write it. They get so mad because I make them write it over and over again for like three weeks before STAR. Yeah. As their warm up, and then by the time that they get to the star test, the goal is that they can just write it down, and it's a reference point for them. So our seven principles of the Constitution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, that's that's a really great idea. Um, Thanks. It's not mine, but well, I'll take credit for it. <laughs> well, but, but now you told everybody this exactly. Nature, so so now, it doesn't matter. Well, you're right. We also talked about you could look at um, specific excerpts from these uh, documents and have them read. Um, the Mayflower Compact and the House, they're hard to read in uh, the language that they're written. Mm-hmm. It's a different version of English. But, I mean, you can you can go through and modify it and have them kind of break it down. They need that practice. They need that, uh, that grit, if you will, because they very well could see this in the, the, uh, the STAR test or any test that you give them or any assessment. You could also have them do a graphic organizer where at the, the bottom they have self-government and they define that and what it means to them and then the layers holding that up or whether you did at the top or the bottom, the definition, the layers holding that up are the Virginia house of Burgesses and what that did to, to develop self-government and then the Mayflower compact and what that did to develop self-government. And it's just the idea that these are the foundational ideas that, um, lead to that development of America's culture, which ultimately is a, a, culture of self-government and of individual rights and all those principles, right? Well said. Thank you. And so now we're kind of at the the end of this this podcast and talking about kind of how does this lead to the influence of the development of the nation's culture? And so um, what were these effects um, that all the things we've discussed had on what we now call America. And really the major things, um, we're going to kind of go back a little bit, is the development of salutary neglect, the idea that England leaves 
the colonies alone for the most part um, because they're taking care of themselves. They don't need to be as involved as they were. Right. And once the colonies get a lot larger, that's when England comes in with the hammer and starts trying to, you know, really make a profit off of the colonies even more so than they already were. And the colonies start to push back. But I, so this may be a terrible example, but the way that I kind of relate this to my kids is it's like a parent who ignores the negative behaviors of their kid because, well, they're just kids. And sometimes it's cute. Ha ha he he, right? And then they turn to be teenagers. And now those negative behaviors or those free behaviors that you were giving them a pass on aren't cute anymore because they can actually harm you. I mean, a 13-year-old boy, if he's going to hit you, it's going to be a big deal, right? And all of a sudden the parents are like, whoa, why does my kid not behave? Why will my kid, I can't get them to put their phone down or... You know, and all of a sudden, they no longer have control of their kid. It's that idea of parental neglect, salutary neglect. Yeah, the thing I kind of talked with my students about was um, I always asked them a question. Uh, Were you more angry when your parents wouldn't buy you a phone or buy you something? Or were you more angry when they took that phone away from you Mm -hmm. or they tried to make that change? And to a kid every year, it was always, they were more upset with the change or the, something being taken mm-hmm. away. So the cons had been given this freedom to do as they saw and control themselves. And now all of a sudden that's been taken away from them. That's why it's easier to start strong with classroom management than mm-hmm. it is to come in later and lay the hammer down. A nice plug there, by Thanks. the way. Nice plug there. <laughs> so our, our next look uh, is kind of at the Declaration of Independence. And this is more directly uh, through John Locke and his idea that the purpose of government is to protect our ideas of life, liberty, and property. And um, as Lindsay will, uh, she will definitely uh, support me on this. Jefferson just really, uh, he plagiarized Locke's work and said <laughs> uh, it was life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But And uh, he, he, he basically takes Locke's words and makes them much more eloquent and much more reader-friendly at the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely disagree with you on the plagiarism <laughs> part because I feel like I mean, if you know me, you know I'm a huge Thomas Jefferson fan, and Kevin and I go back and forth all the time about how great Jefferson is. Uh, That's a future podcast, possibly. (laughs) But, um, you know, in the Declaration of Independence, he articulates that the colonies have developed their identity and that they understand government to be something very different than what the King of England at this time sees government as. And um, they're not going to stand for it. And so he takes John Locke's idea of unalienable rights and he morphs it into um, something unique that's, that, I, that describes the American culture and the American identity of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And he applies it to what the colonists are experiencing in order to rebuttal all of the negative things that the king has been doing. So I think if you can lay that foundation of self-government, it's really going to help the kids understand the idea of the, the ideas behind the Declaration of Independence. Right, and this is where we come back from Magna Carta as well. With the colonists, the colonists didn't just come up with the idea of no taxation without representation at thin air. This was a an, a fundamental right to most Englishmen at the time of the king has to ask for permission to get taxes from you. And since the colonists had no representation in parliament, they see this as their viol- the violation of their fundamental rights. Right. So, And ultimately, it's going <clears> to <throat> lead to the development of the Constitution. You know, I mean, we'll talk about the Articles of Confederation, I'm sure, in a future podcast or a future episode. But um, 
This, these ideas are entrenched in our constitution and therefore in our identity. And so it's not just, oh, they wrote the constitution in, you know, 1787 and, and that's it. That's when these ideas stop. We still today debate these ideas of self-government and unalienable rights and what is the purpose of the government and what is too much power and how does federalism work? And so I think it's super important that we make the connection to not only the constitution when it was being written, but also how it develops through the early Republic, how it develops through Jackson and how it's tested then and and how all of these ideas built on the foundation of John Locke and Montesquieu and the Mayflower Compact and the Burgesses, how that has led to this ongoing culture of challenging government and the authority of government and the purpose of government. Right. I really see the, the Constitution as the the answer that these uh, men found to the problems that they had been dealing with when it came to government and they their experiences and their their personal um, like I said their personal experiences to the problems that led to the revolution that re- led to the Articles of Confederation not being successful and um, ultimately as something that even now I mean to this day we still use as our framework of government because we feel like it's the best version for how to to manage the country. Absolutely. And I think if you can make all those connections for kids, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're doing a rock star job. Something else we wanted to do with these uh, episodes is to kind of give you an ability to have some extensions and to kind of push kids further than just what maybe is in the textbook or what's you know written on the page and kind of look at maybe some of the uh, enrichment opportunities. And so we talked about We've talked about the positives of all these things, but what are some of the negatives of self-government? What are some of the negatives um, that come about yeah. from these things? I think that's super important for kids to really focus in on because that's the whole culture of America, right? Is mm-hmm. to challenge these ideas and to see what are the negatives of them. And so one thing that I'm super passionate about um, is the idea of majority rule. Mm-hmm. And um, my husband made the mistake one day in the car of telling me that, we were talking about, I don't know, the election or something. And he said something about, well, that's majority rule. And I proceeded to educate him (laughs) as to why majority rule really is not a fundamental ideal in America. Um, It's super important principle, but our country is set up to specifically knock out the majority rule to avoid tyranny. And so I think it's an important idea for kids to analyze why? What could be a negative of majority rule, and how how does that impact our country? Well, I think they need to realize that the founders knew that the government would not be perfect, and they were nervous about the mob or the majority of people in the country. And they had seen instances, whether it's Shays' Rebellion or the Whiskey Rebellion, where the mob could definitely cause anarchy and do away with kind of the the uh, foundation of this country, and so. They, they guarded against it. But you've also got to talk about kids love fairness. They love mm-hmm. to argue about fairness. And so when you look at majority rule and talk to about, well, look at segregation. That was a majority rule policy. Or you look at um, women's rights and things of that nature. So you have these abilities to bring these in and look at them from a constitutional standpoint and a, and a fairness thing. And the kids, will are, they'll be engaged. because yeah. Well, they, and it goes back to the question of, what do you do when the majority is wrong? Mm-hmm. What do you do when the majority infringes on the rights of others, which p- ties into the reform movements as well, right? Mm-hmm. You have um, these small groups of minorities really reaching and speaking up for these 
people who can't speak up for themselves. What do you do if the government doesn't have safeguards against that? Um, so you can tie that back to the Federalist Papers. There's several papers there that talk about the idea of factionalism and how intentional they were with our government and the way that they set it up. So Yeah, and what those things say about our culture as a nation. Where does, what is it? How does that judge us, if you will? I don't know if judge is the word I would want to use, but um, what does it say about us as a country and a culture? So definitely challenging to think of some deficiencies. Can you think of any other ones? The big ones, like I said, are segregation, Jim Crow. Um, you're going to get into maybe women's rights. Um, I would say be careful where you tread on these things and make sure that you um, just make sure that you are you're remaining appro- you're yeah. appropriate. And if you have any questions, ask for help. And the other thing, too, that that – keeps you safe for the most part is letting the kids think for themselves. If don't, don't have the kids like, don't sit, go to them and say, majority rule is a deficit because of this. Pose the question to them. How can majority rule be a deficit? And give them examples. I yeah. think that's, or give them, you know, things to look at and go, well, what does this say about majority rule? Is yeah. it always a positive or a negative? That's fantastic. I mean, and, and always for a rule, no matter what you're teaching is never do for the kids what the kids can do themselves. Mm-hmm. Let them grapple with it. Let them argue with it. And you just facilitate. You know, there's no reason for you to ever, you know, uh, really put your opinion on things like that, especially if it's somewhat controversial. Yeah. Well, that's that's the purpose of social studies mm-hmm. is for the kids to learn how to think about things for themselves. Right. Um, you don't want to create robots, right? No. You want to create thinkers and doers and the next generation of great citizens. So... Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Hey there. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Join in on the discussion on Twitter using the hashtag past to present pod. That's past the number two present P O D. Do you have suggestions on how we can improve our podcast? We'd love to hear them. Find our feedback form and much more on our website, pasttopresentpod.com. Special thanks to our producer, Ms. Sharon Thorngreen, and all those who helped develop the content for today's episode. Audio mixing done by Lindsay Stevens and music credit to bensound.com. All thoughts and ideas expressed in today's episode are that of the hosts and do not necessarily reflect the beliefs of KDISD.